1: Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. I am your host, Larry Lees, and on today's episode of Cold Case Friday, we dive into the Rhode Island cold case you've never heard of. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Audible, for sponsoring this episode. If you're looking for the next best audiobook to enjoy from any kind of genre, check out Audible today. Get a free three-month trial and free audiobook of your choice at audibletrial.com slash Larry21. And without further ado, you dive right in. Joseph Curry was out for a Saturday afternoon walk beside the Ten Mile River near his home in Pawtucket. When along a path known to locals as Lover's Lane, he saw what looked like a strange gray boulder among the bushes. But when Mr. Curry strolled over to investigate, he didn't find a boulder. Instead, he found the blood-soaked body of Rita Butcher, a 17-year-old mill worker from North Providence. Her throat had been slashed from ear to ear, and she had been stabbed 30 times in the back and neck. The date was February 1st, 1947. It was four days before the full moon. A fiendish murder, said Dr. Albert Goddard, the medical examiner who told reporters that Rita Butchard had not been raped. There were no signs of struggle on the spot, and her clothes, a blueprint dress, brown and white saddle, shoes, and yellow bobby socks were not disarranged. Her glasses and a handbag containing $40 were missing, but a gold wristwatch on her left arm still ticked. Some 100 yards from the riverbank, she was found lying on her light gray coat in a lonely thicket enclosed clearing behind the Notre Dame Cemetery. And though 13 wounds were counted on the girl's mutilated back, including two deep gashes between her shoulder blades, only three holes were found in the back of her coat. A tree near the body borne freshly inflicted hatchet marks as if placed there by the killer as a guide in locating the spot in which he left his victim's body. When asked whether the murder had been committed in the clearing or whether the girl's body had been carried there, the doctor said it's a wide-open question. The Pawtucket Police Force was immediately plunged in the investigation because the city's police chief was vacationing in Florida. Chief Inspector Wilfred Wadsworth took over the case. Under his direction, almost the entire detective division was assigned to investigate the girl's every stop. Step, excuse me. So now we're going to dive into the investigation angle of this story. Police found that the quiet brown-haired girl had left work at the Rhode Island Fabrics Company early on January 31st. Although she usually worked from 3 to 11 p.m. that afternoon, she had complained of feeling ill and left the plant at 5 o'clock saying she was going to see a doctor and then visit her mother, a patient at the State Tuberculosis Sanatorium at Walham Lake, where her father died eight years earlier. But Rita did not see her doctor. She did not go to Wallum Lake, nor did she return to her home, room at the home of her aunt on Mineral Spring Avenue, where she had been living with her brothers and sister, all of them wards of the state, on visit from the state home and school. When she failed to appear at the residence that Friday night, Her family assumed she had gone to spend the night with a girlfriend. Neither Rita's uncle nor her aunt had any inkling of her death until a description of the murder victim came over a radio news broadcast Saturday afternoon. They called the police immediately. Between Friday evening and Saturday morning, 17 hours were missing from Rita's life. During that time, she spent the night somewhere before traveling to the banks of the river where she met a horrible death. So where had she been? A bus driver said he drove a girl resembling Rita to a cafeteria near the Main Street Bridge at 5.40 p.m. on Friday. Another bus driver who knew the murdered girl said he saw her get into a car in downtown Pawtucket about 6 p.m. With little information to go on, police tried to fill the void. They questioned girlfriends, men who had dated Rita, and the residents near the factory and crime scene. They even questioned Rita's uncle, her sister, and her two closest friends from the neighborhood. Teresa and, Ra- and Raymond, in an effort to establish new clues as to the identity of her assailant, but despite their best efforts, the trail went cold. As the investigation entered its sixth week, or second week, excuse me, Pawtucket police remained without a tangible clue in the brutal slaying of Rita Butcher. Still missing were the handbag containing forty dollars and the eyeglasses, which her aunt said Rita always wore. They were also still looking for the murder weapon, which medical examiner believed was a stiletto-like knife. Though police followed up on a tip from Rita's aunt that the girl had confided in her that she feared a man she had been dating and many times expressed the idea she would die a violent death, they could find no link to her known boyfriends. Their only theory was that a woman might have have stabbed a girl in a frenzy of jealousy over a common paramour. Stymied, Inspector Wadsworth publicly appealed to anyone with worthwhile information to notify police at once. But the request brought only a volley of crank telephone calls and letters. Then, on the 18th day after the murder, there was a break in the case. While walking with friends by Slater Park near an entrance to the heavily wooded 10-mile reservation, an 8-year-old boy was kicking the grass at the edge of a sidewalk by the corner of Armstead's Armistice Boulevard and Parkside Avenue, the far end of the lover's lane, less than a half mile from the crime scene. When his foot suddenly came in contact with an object, it was a knife. Its blade, eight and a quarter inch long, was stained red on both sides. When the weapon was surrendered to to authorities, the medical examiner proclaimed that the double-edged blade fitted the three puncture holes in Rita's coat. With the investigation revived... Inspector Wadsworth vowed to make every effort to trace the weapon as speedily as possible, and though for several weeks it was now the most, in fact the only solidly discovered in the case. But it led nowhere. Then, by a twist of fate, nearly two months after the murder of a 17-year-old, Pawtucket Youth arrested on an unrelated charge spun a fantastic story for police. Eugene Raymond was born in 1929 at his parents' home in Pawtucket. His birth and childhood were uneventful, excepting an episode of rheumatic fever when he was 14 years old. As a child, he was pleasant, agreeable, quiet, and independent. He started school at 6 or 7 and remained until he was 15, when he flatly refused to go back. He could not read or write with the exception of his name. Described as being usually reserved as a teenager, Raymond was rather nervous, impulsive, and restless. Characteristics, it was claimed, that were aggravated at the full of the moon. It was then that he became irritable and impatient and complained of headaches on the side of his head and forehead. Raymond didn't bother much with people, but was neat about himself and liked to help around the house. He had a great desire and habit of riding around in taxi cabs, and his father, a twice-married 50-year-old street cleaner, felt that he spent too much money in this respect. Though his father denied it, when Raymond was 16 years old, he was sentenced to nine months the school for boys on charges of stealing cars and committing immoral acts, with boys and girls on numerous occasions. Upon his discharge from the reformatory in September of 1946, it was noted by doctors that he had become particularly restless. After his release, Raymond spent much of his time at the home in Pawtucket's Prospect Heights, just a few blocks from Slater Park. Otherwise, he worked regularly in mills and at the Rhode Island Fabrics Company as a dishwasher, until taking a leave of absence in the middle of January 1947. By the early springtime of that same year, Raymond was once again in police custody, this time charged with carnal knowledge of an eight-year-old boy. Recognized as being one of the two friends solicited by police early in the Rita Butchard murder investigation, he was immediately put under intense questioning, and though he at first insisted that he had been in downtown Pawtucket between 7 and 10 p.m. on the Friday before the murder, After 72 hours of relentless interrogation, led by Inspector Wadsworth, the youth finally broke, saying, All right, I'll tell you the story. On the Friday afternoon, before Rita's body was found, Raymond went to the Rhode Island Fabrics Company on School Street to ask the foreman if it would be all right to come back to work on Monday. After being out for a leave of absence, he left about 315 He then went to downtown Pawtucket, where he entered the Capitol Theater at about 4 p.m. Then at about 7 p.m., he said by coincidence, Rita came into the theater and sat down next to him. They talked for five five minutes and then left the theater and walked up.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts. So, you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Street to Collier Park at the junction of Main and Mineral Spring Avenue, where they sat down on a bunch. They had been there only a few minutes when a car with a yellow registration plate drove up and the driver addressed Rita by the name. She went over and spoke to the man, then called to Raymond to come over to the car and finally persuaded him to get inside. With Raymond in the back seat and Rita in the front with the driver, they drove to the entrance of Slater Park on Armistice Boulevard. Raymond told them he wanted to go back downtown, so they drove him back and dropped him at the Capitol Theater. As he got out, the driver asked Rita if he wanted to go home or go back to the park. Raymond told police he thought Rita replied she wanted to go back to the park. When they drove away, he got a cup of coffee, and then, having been out on dates with Rita before, started to worry about the girl. So shortly after 8 p.m., he hopped a trackless trolley and went back to the Slater Park entrance where he found Rita, alone, sitting on a bench, crying. He asked her, what's the matter? And according to Raymond, she slapped his face and got up to walk away. Persistent, Raymond followed her to a nearby bus stop and asked her again, what's the matter? And this time, his story ran. She slapped his face and kicked him twice in the groin. And he said, his mind went blank. When Raymond came to, he was lying on the ground in the woods with a girl's body beside him. After asking twice, is that you, Rita? He saw a knife on the ground, got up, and following a path out of the woods by moonlight, he took the trolley and bus back to his home, arriving there shortly after 10 p.m. When pressed as to why he had revealed this story to the police at the start of the investigation, Raymond insisted that he had not lied. It wasn't until a week later he said that he had a dream in which the incidents he now described to the police came back to him, whereafter he woke up and realized that what had happened was re- real. After listening patiently to the recital of the boy's story, detectives and Inspector Wadsworth took him in a police car to Collier Park. and asked him to point out the park bench on which he and Rita were supposed to have been sitting. He pointed out a bench. Now where did the car come from, the inspector asked. From over there, he said, indicating North Providence. Okay, Wadsworth said, now you lead the way and tell us where you went. He then directed the driver of the police car to go down Park Place, swing on Main Street, then to Walcott Street, North Bend Street, and finally on Armistice Boulevard. At the entrance to Slater Park, he was asked to point out which bench, bench they sat on. He pointed one out. Now, after you got kicked by Rita, how did you enter the woods? He asked. I don't know, he replied. I only remember walking up beside Rita, and I can't stand dead bodies, so I walked away. The police then led the boy from Armistice Boulevard in the woods at the entrance of the Lumber's Lane, where he said he emerged that night. Foot by foot, he led them nearly to the place where the body was found. But when asked to point out the exact spot, he said, I don't remember, there were a lot of trees around. At last, they took him to the clearing and asked him point blank if he had murdered Rita. I don't remember, he said. Maybe I did it. Disconcerting, though his story may have been, police were nevertheless confounded, finding the tale packed with inconsistencies. His description on the knife, for instance, did not answer the description of the blood-stained dagger found at the corner of Armistice and Parkside weeks earlier. Nor could he account for Rita's missing pocketbook and glasses, neither of which had been found. His recollection of the crime scene was equally suspect. At the clearing in the woods, when asked how Rita's body lay on the ground, he indicated her head was pointed towards the river, when actually it was at a right angle to the river, when discovered by police. Furthermore, the spot where her body was found was marshy, and on the afternoon of February 1st, The mud was at least two inches deep. With this fact in mind, Inspector Wadsworth asked the youth that since he had been lying down in the mud, he must have soiled his clothes. He replied, oh, I only had a couple of leaves on the front of my coat. Another puzzling factor for investigators was that Rita had no mud on her shoes corresponding to the mud surrounding the place where her body was found. So they had ruled out that she had walked even a short distance in the woods. The boy, underdeveloped for his age, weighed only 90 pounds. If she rode near the spot in, in an automobile, then was carried several hundred feet in the marshy underbrush, a man much stronger than he must be sought, they contended. But among the most glaring discrepancies, assuming that it was Rita's body, the youth claimed he found at his side, was the fact that the medical examiner placed the time of death no earlier than 6 a.m. Saturday morning, at least eight hours after. The boy said he woke up in the woods, and when Rita's body was found at 2.40 p.m. Sunday, Saturday afternoon, there was no knife anywhere to be found. It was not unusual, police later pointed out to reporters for innocent persons that claimed guilt for sensational crimes. They liked the publicity, Chief Mill said, and so, unable to corroborate any part of the youth's account, the police completely rejected his story, believing that he clearly needed mental care. On the very same night of his bizarre confession, Raymond was therefore committed to a psychiatric hospital for observation. Before we move on with our story, give us a thumbs up if you like our video. Subscribe to the channel, hit the bell notification button to be notified of future videos. Then on March twentieth, 1947, at age 17, Raymond was admitted to the Charles Chapin Hospital in Providence, Ray he was received by Dr. Sidney Goldstein, directing psychiatrist and former assistant superintendent the Exeter School for the Feeble-Minded. According to the doctor's notes, on entry, Raymond was observed to be neat, cooperative, and somewhat effeminate in manner. His speech was normal, and responses were not unusual. He was calm and not disturbed by being held in a mental ward. His course in the hospital was characterized at first by being quiet, retiring, cooperative, and helpful about the ward. Occasionally, he complained of headaches. During the last two weeks of his stay, however, he became rather irritable, showing feelings of hostility towards some of the medical staff. He refused to obey the nurses and was reluctant to go through the occupational therapy shop, giving his reason that he thought his old rheumatic fever was beginning to flare up again. By the third week, Raymond became somewhat superior in his attitude toward the other patients and expressed the idea that he was being held as a prisoner. And there, so suddenly and inexplicably as it began, the story began. No further leads were ever given to police, no more clues were found, and no other suspects were ever brought forward. Shortly after Rita's death, her aunt and uncle were evicted from their North Providence home, and Rita's brothers and sisters were placed into foster homes and institutions. Following Raymond's final sentence at the school to which he was committed on the carnal knowledge charge next to nothing is known of his life, but for his marriage to a young Exeter school inmate sometime after his release in 1951. In 1956, nine years after the murder, the Providence Journal published a follow-up story on the unsolved crime with what would prove to be the final word in the case, concluding that the murderer of Rita Bouchard, if he lives, is still a free man. Today, nearly three-quarters of a century since the murder, little is left to remind us of Rita's short life. The state home and school where she lived after her father died was demolished in the 50s, and the sanatorium where her mother died closed in 1982. The Charles Chapin Hospital, where Raymond was committed after a strange confession, closed in the 70s, is now part of Providence College. The mill where he and Rita worked has long been vacant, and the Capitol Theater, where they alleged met on the evening before her death, was demolished in the fifties. The spot in which the bloodstained dagger was found is now the corner of a quiet, modern, suburban neighborhood. And the lover's lane, besides which Rita's body was discovered, is now the greenway bike path. All that remains in the unsolved crime is a macabre memorial of that fateful night. A tree by the bank of the Ten Mile River still bears the deep scars of the killer's hatchet marks in its side. And yet many questions still linger in the case. Where had she spent the night of January 31st, 1947, and how had she come to arrive at the river's edge? Had she been, had she been killed where she was found, or had her body been carried to the place? Why were there only three puncture holes in the back of her coat, though she had been stabbed 13 times in the back? What about the deep gashes between her shoulders and the significance of the hatchet marks in the tree? Had they been inflicted by another weapon? What was the identity of the mystery man in the car? And who was the man Rita told her aunt she feared? Had the boy's story been, as police contended, only a dream? The answer, sadly, may well be lost to history. Whatever really happened to Rita, one February morning in 1947, is a story that has very likely been taken to the grave. Let us know your thoughts in the comments section below. Do you have any theories? And if you want to support the channel, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, bring in new hosts, be able to pay them. And as always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We will see you next time. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show. Buy us a coffee at BuyMeACoffee.com slash TCNN. Or become a patron at Patreon.com slash True Crime Never Sleeps.